Hey, FFR listeners, I just wanted to give a content warning. There's discussion of sexual assault in today's episode. This season of Feminist Frequency Radio, we're bringing our feminist media criticism live to video. That's right. If you would like to see us as well as hear us talk about all things cyberpunk, you can do that at youtube.com slash feminist frequency. The audio quality on the videos are not quite as good as you get from our professionally edited podcast, but you do get to see our shining faces. So, you know, your call. We also have live video of all our bonus episodes with our special guests, which are only available to patrons. So get in on that fun at patreon.com slash femfreak. Now enjoy the show. Hey, y'all, you know, we're a nonprofit, right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com slash femfreak. Also, fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give, please head over to patreon.com slash femfreak. Every time I recommend this movie to someone, I'm like, by the way, (laughs) there's this thing, there's five minutes in the middle of this movie that you might want to just fast forward over or like read the Wikipedia plot summary because it is intensely hard to watch. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian. And I'm Kat Spada. And this season, our feminist media criticism takes place in a Los Angeles war zone in 1999 because this is the season of cyberpunk. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. The new millennium, this is amazing, will bring a new experience. How do you fit all that in your head anyway? I had to dump a chunk of long-term memory. This is going to be fun, Terry. Who is this? Take this thing out of the case and stick it up your nose. Mozart's ghost, the hottest band on the internet! This week, we're discussing Strange Days, Catherine Bigelow's 1995 action thriller starring Ray Fiennes, Angela Bassett, and Juliette Lewis. Based on a story by Bigelow's ex-husband, James Cameron, Strange Days was influenced by several sensational early 90s news stories, including the trial of Lorena Bobbitt and the 1992 LA riots. Set in a black market, trading in virtual reality, recordings of people's past experiences and memories, Fiennes and Bassett plays a uh, ex-cop and a bodyguard who investigate a murder scene on one of those recordings. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire-tripped? You ready? No. (laughs) This is not like TV only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? The forbidden fruit, straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there, you're doing it, you're feeling it. Are you beginning to see the possibilities here? I am your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. If this guy's something to do with the wire, sooner or later it washes up on your beach. Fan mail from some flounder? This is conspiracy paranoia. The issue isn't whether you're paranoid, Lenny. The issue is whether you're paranoid enough. This tape is a lightning bolt from God. Go on, man. Cheer up. World's gonna end in ten minutes anyway. Joining us to discuss this film is a writer, journalist, and podcaster who probably inspired a lot of the television and media criticism you've read online, having been the first TV editor of the AV Club. She's the critic at large for Vox and the creator, writer, producer of the fictional true crime parody podcast, Arden. Her book, Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion to the X-Files, is available at booksellers everywhere. Welcome to the show, Emily St. James. Hello, it's me, Emily St. James. That was a did I that was a very nice bio. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited you are doing this with us. I'm so excited you picked this particular movie with mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um we met I've known of you for a long time, but I didn't know who you were when we met. It took me like a minute to click in, but we it was in the middle of COVID and you and I were both being interviewed for some weird ass sitcom through the ages yeah. TV series. Mm-hmm. And we were both sitting in the makeup room, like 
in this weird COVID haze. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I think I know you. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I was like, hmm. You seem familiar. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's that thing where like when someone is well known on the internet, as I would say, we both are. And you're like, I think that person might be, but it's not like it's, it's not even like, it's like, um, you know, like uh, someone who's like on a TV show where you're like, okay, yes, of course. You know, um, it's just such a weird thing when a person will come up to me and be like, are you Emily St. James? I'm like, how do you know that? But then I'm like, oh, right. I'm, I do things online and people like pay attention to them. So. Yeah. It's super weird. And then when you're like in a space together, you're like, do I, is it, is it weird if I say something and you're not that person? So mm-hmm. anyways, I am so stoked for you to do this. Um, ha- you, I know that you've seen strange days before because you were just like, Boom, this is the one. I know this movie. This is great. Yeah. Kat, have you seen this movie before? I haven't seen this movie before. I barely knew about this movie's existence before. I wow. think I conflated it with Near Dark. Like when I would mm. think like, you know, Catherine Bigelow did um those early movies that she did. You know, like it was just um I could reckon I could pick the poster out of a lineup. Um But I, you know, when she made the cool movies before the warmongering movies, you know, (laughs) and I mean, I, you're going to be like disappointed in me, but watching this, I was like, I really want to watch Detroit, I guess. I really would like to see what kind of takes she's going to have, because I have questions, but, and watching this, like every sequence of this movie was so striking for for a number of different reasons i was like why haven't i heard about this scene why haven't i heard about this technique why haven't i heard about this like somehow it has been completely absent from my um primordial soup of movie knowledge and i wait you mean movies about female directors get thrown under the radar and not giving credit for doing cool things all right i forgot about that part Um, uh yeah it, it was first and it was like Am I going to watch it again? I don't know. That's the thing. I loved it. Um, I guess. Uh, I don't know what to say. It was it was a huge movie watching experience two nights ago. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is imprinted on my biology at this point because I did watch it as a child or yeah, when I was young. Huh. And I really loved it. And the reason I watched it was because I think it came out around the... T- so my sister's 11 years older than me. Mm. So this was before I thought my sister wasn't cool. Like, you know, when you're still young enough that you're like, I was like, oh, like top 40 radio. That's cool. (laughs) Before I like gained my own style. And I think I was eavesdropping on a conversation she was having where she was talking to her friends about how she really wanted to watch Strange Days and A Clockwork Orange. So I was like, well, I guess I need to go watch both of those movies. Clockwork Orange did not have the same impact on me. Mm. <laughs> but this one, I think, like, especially as a kid, the visuals and, like, it was so dark and, like, you know, like, intense in these ways. And, like, I just immediately was obsessed with Julia Lewis, which I became a thing into adulthood. I was like, she's so cool. Um, and Angela Bassett. And so there's so many things about this that I, uh, like, just because I think I was so young, it gave me a different impression of it. I've watched it several times through the years, but it's been a little bit. And um, I think, and and on this rewatch, I was like, man, I forgot how fucking rapey this movie is. Like, Ooh. it's really, like, the the sexual violence in it is really intense. And that kind of took me, took me back a, a little bit in this viewing. I uh, watched this movie probably dozens of times as a teenager, like at least one dozen. Um, This was one of my favorite movies ever made for a while. Um, I don't know if I would put it at that same level. I think it's Catherine Bigelow's best movie though. Like I love this movie still to this day. It is very much obviously made by two uh, well-meaning white liberals who are like, well, if we just talk to each other, we'll figure this out. Right guys. (laughs) But like Within that framework, which is how a lot of Hollywood films approach issues like, like police violence, and misogyny and structural racism within that framework it is impressively pessimistic like Mm. it is very much like there's like two good cops in this movie and yes they save the day and like the right thing happens at the end but the movie is not under any illusions about how broken the world is um and i i mean i just 
I mean, obviously watching this as a teenage trans girl, a movie about people that get to like literally experience other lives where Ray Fine is like, you could try being a woman for a while. See how that feels. Like that was like tapped into my like cerebral cortex. But I think there's so much more going on here. Like that as I watched it today, probably for the first time since I was a teenager, because this movie is very hard to find now. It's very, um, it's fallen into obscurity. Like a lot of movies produced by James Cameron, Slight Storm Entertainment for various Mm. rights reasons. Mm. Um, But yeah, as I watched it today, I was like, oh yeah, this really holds up in a way that like makes clear why it was not a hit, but also like makes me sad it hasn't become the it hasn't become Blade Runner, basically. You know, right. like I love Blade Runner, but this movie should be right up there with it. Yeah. So you tweeted today that this is a deeply trans movie, and I wanted to hear more about that. Was it was it because of the way that the tech works to allow people to inhabit other experiences? Yeah. Or was it more than that? Yeah. And like I so I want to be very careful here because James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow are two directors who create movies that ex- that like frequently explore big trans moods. Mm. Like James Cameron has made so many movies about like taking your consciousness and putting it into another being. And Catherine Bigelow has made so many movies about like just sort of like exploring the like veneer of masculinity. And once she realized that all of the male characters in this movie have her haircut at the time, you kind of <laughs> can't unsee it. I'm not saying either of these directors are trans. I don't believe that. I would not like say that for them. If they want to come and tell me that, I will print an interview about it on Vox.com and I would just love to do that for them. But, and I do think a lot of it's attributable to like James Cameron clearly wants to be crushed beneath the shoe of a powerful woman because that's fun for him. That's the one (laughs) like, objective truth I know about James Cameron. <laughs> and and Catherine Bigelow clearly is like hates herself a little bit for being attracted to men. So I think you can also attribute those vibes to those like like two impulses which overlap with a lot of trans impulses. But this is very much a movie about how like once you start breaking down once technology allows you to start breaking down a lot of how society functions, then a lot of things don't make sense anymore. And one of those things is gender. If you can just randomly put on another gender for a day, why wouldn't you? This movie essentially asks. And like, as a trans person, I sort of feel like gender is deeply rooted in a way that is inextricable from the self while also being a complete social construct. Um, As I frequently say, it's an entirely made up thing that is the most important thing to me personally. Um, But uh, it is like a movie about as these uh, experiences happen, what are ones that can feel very real and vital to you? And you'll notice when characters are putting on the persona of someone from the other side of the gender binary, because this movie doesn't have any non-binary characters or anyone outside that gender binary. Um, There's like a viscerality to it that they're able to feel in a way that's not as true when they're putting on like someone of a different um, race or a different Mm. background or a different socioeconomic status. That feels a little bit more like a costume for lack of a better word. Whereas when you like, when, when Ray Fine is like, like in the experience of being a woman, it's clear that he's like, Whoa, this is really cool. And so Mm -hmm. there is a, there is a very like trans element of when you start to think about how gender is, is, is arbitrary and you can make it do whatever you want. Technology will help you with that in a lot of ways. Like, Trans people have been around for all of human history, but like the internet has helped us find each other. And this movie kind of feels kind of feels like it's about that. And like I'm I'm gonna go really deep in the trans weeds in a little bit, but but I've talked a lot. So I but I think that it is it's also kind of about that experience of when you come out as trans and you're like, oh, gender's made up, then suddenly you're like, well, monogamy is also made up. Mm. Wait a minute, capitalism's made up. And you just like go down the list of things that are like, this was constructed by people hundreds of years ago. Why are we still doing this? So it is kind of also a movie about that. But again, within the framework of James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow being like, if we just shook hands, we could fix all this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... um like I wasn't expecting that reading uh, when when I asked you to <laughs> to do this movie, uh, but I I think it's really interesting and rewatching it now uh, with with different perspective and being an adult in time period, you're like, oh, this this technology is actually could be extremely transformative in 
like so many ways for so many people in ways that you hear about with like video games and experiencing like being able to inhabit, you know, like different characters and different experiences. And like the, the, the other side of that is it also, I kept being like, oh shit, this is a whole new type of revenge porn. (laughs) You know, Mm. like this is a whole new type of like ways to abuse and, and uh, like, like online digital attacks kinds of energy. And I, I really love that you brought up the like, we just shake hands because we're good liberals and we just got to talk shit out. I don't think that it's a movie about two, like there's just two good cops. I think there's two bad cops, mm-hmm. right? Or like three bad cops and then the rest of them are good. So it's very much the like bad apples have to be weeded out of the force to some degree. And I know that there's like a, an energy of like more of them are bad and there's the one captain that's good, but it really did feel like, well, now that we arrested these guys, that's that it to some degree. And I think there is, I think to put it a little bit more accurately, it is a movie that believes the police as a monolithic force will just sort of follow whoever's closest to them. So when it's the bad cops, they're doing bad things. And when it's this one good cop, they're like, Oh, we're going to do the right thing. And like, I think that reality has not borne that out, but it's sort of interesting when you read the criticisms of this film from the time, they're very much like, well, this movie is very anti-police in a way that's unrealistic. And now when you read criticisms of it, people are like, Oh, this movie doesn't quite get how bad the police can be. It's it's <laughs> fascinating <laughs> how prescient this movie is. Yeah, and it, and as you said earlier, like why this wasn't a bigger hit or hasn't been as like uh, widespread remembered as other movies. That whole last like New Year's Eve sequence. Not only does it feel like it hinges on like you know, the big MacGuffin is like, can you find the one good cop? Like, if you can get the one good cop, which is like, that's like the ultimate uh, challenge of <laughs> that they have to do. Um, but also I thought like, oh, it's incredible to me that I haven't seen this scene of Angela Bassett beating down our two bad cops and handcuffing them. And I was like, why isn't this scene like everywhere? And it in music videos like people should be talking about it and then immediately she starts getting beaten and I was like oh this is a scene like people must have watched this and felt so deeply uncomfortable which is um a good thing but like yeah this is uh this is a movie that I think really really plays on a lot of like this what psychologically filmmaking techniques can do to you um which is why I'm like, I would love to watch this again. I thought it was fantastic and interesting, and I feel like I will get more out of it watching it again. But that first-person shooter-style rape scene is so horrible. And I thought, I've seen a lot of rape scenes in movies. You know, they're, they're ones that you see and you chalk it up to just the way you see a lot of other violence in movies. But psychologically putting the goggles on the viewer is really something uh that's like just deeply uncomfortable and that they they then the actors have to try to portray that afterwards you have like ray fines going like oh you know or like trying to take the squid off his head um but it's impossible to really replicate what it would feel like to be experiencing the sensations and reality and identity of somebody else that you're inhabiting and this isn't like virtual reality right they're actual memories they're actual things that have happened and that's different too um and all of this i was like i feel like this is the first time a movie's making me ask some of these questions and that's incredible the like real richness of the metaphor at the center of this movie of the squid you know can stand in for a bunch of things but i think it the most sort of obvious thing that a lot of critics have taken away from this is it stands in for filmmaking in many ways and like telling a story through visual images. And I think it feels weird to say like, this is my favorite rape scene because it's not, but I think it is a rape scene that like has something to say. And like, that's Mm -hmm. why it's so uncomfortable because it's not just there to like juice the story. It is, there is this like really rich examination of the ways in which movies are re-traumatizing and like triggering for sexual assault and abuse survivors. Um, Like as someone in that category, it's very, the thing where the rapist puts 
the squid on his victim. So she has to experience what he's feeling is like, a, I could write a 50 page paper on that, that moment alone. Cause it's so evocative of the ways in which we don't even really think about how rape scenes function in a lot of media. And like Catherine Bigelow was very clearly thinking about that very hard. And like, I don't know. I think it's a brilliant sequence. And yet every time I recommend this movie to someone, I'm like, by the way, <laughs> there's this thing, there's five minutes in the middle of this movie that you might want to just fast forward over or like read the Wikipedia plot summary. Cause it is intensely hard to watch. We always talk about the rape scene in irreversible and that being a protracted scene where you're held at a distance and the camera doesn't move and a bystander walks in and out of the scene and puts you in the place of the bystander. Like that is a a very effective scene for also putting you in the position of asking uh, questions about how you observe violence and how you are complicit in things that you observe, et cetera. But this is, it, it even, I mean, the, the discomfort starts, it starts right away when he talks about like the snuff uh, version of these, uh, films, but I felt really uncomfortable in that first Juliette Lewis uh, rollerblading scene because I thought, man, I've fretted over an ex having a nude photo of me and just having it, not even distributing it, but just having it. And I've fretted over that and feeling like, oh God, that creep is going to have this picture, have access to this grainy flip phone picture of like half of a boob gross and then to think of like oh god this person can relive these experiences with you and i'm not consenting to that but i guess i consented to it in the time like even that was troubling and what i really appreciated about this movie is the story doesn't start until like an hour in it's just laying the groundwork and telling you what strange days we're living in. And then it really kicks off into like two sort of parallel uh, journeys. I kind of also liked that Ray Fiennes didn't really give a shit about Jericho and Angela Bassett didn't really give a shit about Faith, but they both needed to accomplish these kind of goals alongside each other. Um, and again, I was like, most Hollywood movies don't don't take the they don't have that breathing room. They don't give you that. Um, they just need to jump in and get from like plot point to plot point. So this was, the more I'm talking about it too, I'm like, oh, I definitely want to watch it again because um, I asked, I, I, it raised so many questions for me in the first viewing. I think that the, um, the, the aesthetic of this movie is such a critical part of, of it and like and you could you could do another viewing of it just to like look at the world. I think ca the the three movies of Catherine Bigelow's that I've seen is Near Dark, uh, Point Break, which you know everyone knows is one of my favorites, and Strange Days, and they all have very distinctive tones. Um, I feel like she's incredible. Her and her team are incredible at building environments and tone that are cohesive. And there's there's like almost a there's an over the topness in all of them but that's just muted enough that you can buy into really quickly and i think this one is 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 fully that right you know you you've got like santa being beaten up on the side of the street to just show how lawless this town is right like everything is just uh, you know wild and there's fires in the street and it's like it's what you imagine like a you know quote unquote inner city to be in <laughs> 1999 or whatever um and then you see the people with a lot of money and a lot of wealth and like the despair that disparity right which is again going back to that like uh you know the the liberals wanting to show how like real the world is but the aesthetic of it right the club the music like the soundtrack like i this must be how i learned about skunk and Nancy, which is one of the bands that plays that i loved when i was a kid um with like a black female singer punk band you know like which it was you know if you were into punk at the time it was very white and male dominated um and so like the music, the tone, the aesthetic, the lighting, like as it's, it's cheesy, but then it quickly becomes like your whole universe while you're in the, mm. in experiencing it. And I think that that's something that really sucks me into this, the, the whole experience of this movie. And like, 
So Juliette Lewis, I mean, as a teenager, I obviously thought she was very cool. Uh, she actually has a band, uh, or she did. I don't know if she still does. I think it was called Juliet Lewis and the Licks. I've seen them live once, and it's just, it's that. Like, it's it's her and Strange Days is her band. Uh, and this is just a total aside. Um, once I, I, there was a, like a tiny interview of me featured in Rolling Stone. And like, I think she retweeted or liked it. And I was like, ah! <laughs> I can't believe Julia Lewis found me. Not that I really give a shit as an adult, but that the kid of me that watched this movie as a child was just like, came out and was like, excited by it. She's terrible in this. <laughs> she, I feel like she's like the be- the big, the weakest link in terms of acting in it. But I will give her all the forgiveness. Um, you know, because whatever, but this cast also, I think is really phenomenal. Like, um, Michael Wincott, I just, every time he shows up, I'm like, yes, you're the best bad guy ever. Like I, you're horrible and a monster. The the record producer? He's Philo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Angela Bassett. I remember, you know, we talk a lot about Sarah Connor's arms. I don't know why we don't talk about Angela Bassett's arms. She comes out and she's just fucking ripped and just like amazing. And yeah. Yeah. Listen, listen. (laughs) (laughs) after last week's episode I asked you offline I was like do I talk too much about the crushes I have on actors in movies that we talk about and you were like it's fine Angela Bassett is the one celebrity that I have seen in person I I usually I'm cool and I grew up in LA I usually don't go talk to celebrities I saw Angela Bassett at an event two years ago And I had, I was overcome with this feeling that I had to approach her, but there was a small part of self that said, if you approach Angela Bassett, you are going to touch Angela Bassett. And if you touch Angela Bassett, you'll disintegrate into a pile of dust. So I kept a respectful distance and I stared at her for like the duration of the party. (laughs) I need an entire series, like a televised series getting her character from waitress whose husband is getting arrested in the flashback to ripped bodyguard limo driver. I want to know how that happened. I'm fascinated by this character. It's inconsequential to me that they kiss at the end of this movie. I don't feel like it matters what kind of relationship they have, but I I want to know about her world and the fact that there's a moment when they kind of go into hiding, like they go to her sister's house or something, and she's seeing her son play with people in the neighborhood, and it's New Year's Eve, and he's kind of happy and carefree for a minute. And she just smiles looking out the window. And I I was like, we're deep now into the plot of trying to find a killer. And this movie's giving me just a moment of seeing this woman, like, pleased that her son is having a peaceful experience. And... That is telling me so much more than any number of like action or plot scenes in a given movie. Um, also, yeah, Nero walking as into this black like New Year's party as the only white dude. I was like, oh my god, what's like, happening here? <laughs> um, uh. I think that uh, Juliette Lewis, the per- songs she was performing were PJ Harvey written, I believe. Um, that would make a lot of sense. She was cool in this movie. I also thought, like, was this her first, like, non-child actor role? I mean, she did um, um, that one with Woody Harrelson. Natural Born Killers was yeah, before this? Yeah, around okay. this time, right? I, I don't know sure. when that came out. That's 94. Yeah, that's 94. Yeah. So that's right before this. Yeah, she's... I I was talking about this with, with my wife. I was like, is she... Hot? Like, as an actor, you know, how do you feel about her? And she was like, she's always interesting. And I'm like... Mm-hmm. Even when I don't like her in a movie or a TV show or something, she's doing something fascinating that I kind of can't look away from. And when she's dialed in, she's so dialed in that you're like, yes. And it's almost like she kind of doesn't care about the tone of the thing. Like she wants to, (laughs) she's going to do her thing. And then everyone else is going to like, you know, figure out how it fits in. I did think a lot about how. Angela Bassett especially, but also Ray Fine, are much more emotionally real than you see in movies like this. They are playing, especially that scene where they're just like arguing about, you know, it's pro- it comes pretty late in the film. They're just arguing about like, like life basically. Mm-hmm. And it's so powerful. And I'm like, 
oh, this is why this movie, this is part of why this movie flopped. It is very hard to watch this. It's very real. It's very, they're, they're laying their guts out on the floor. And I think Juliette Lewis is in the more conventional version of this movie that is a little bit pulpier. And like, I think that's why she kind of feels discordant, but she's having fun. She's doing interesting stuff. Like every time, everything she does is fascinating to watch. And like, sometimes that's all you want out of a performer. She's like Christopher Walken. Like she's bringing Juliette Lewis to this movie you know but was she Juliet lewis before then you know like did are these the movies that helped make her i don't right. i don't know what her history is i feel yeah. so her first movie sorry um her Please. her first movie is cape fear the martin scorsese movie and she gets an oscar nomination for that and she's fantastic in that movie but she's also playing like a teenager who has a flirtation with a grown man and like you're like okay sure but that's like her big breakthrough and like she gets an Oscar nomination for it. So she's already like doing really interesting stuff. I think she just wandered onto the set of a movie and was like, I'm the most interesting person alive. And everyone was like, you know what you are, you get to be in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And you know, like she's, she looks a particular way. Right. And like, they definitely use that in this movie and she's appealing. And like, you know, her, like I, I was watching, fuck, what was I watching? I was watching a movie the other day and I was like, the oh, I was watching Now You See Me, which whatever oh, okay. y'all can talk all the shit you want. I fucking love these movies. They're just I love Magic Trick Ocean's yeah, Eleven type yeah, of thing. It, okay, yes, I will watch any heist movie. I don't care. Um, but the casting was really off because um, two of them have no stage presence. So when they're on these huge stages, it feels really weird. Um, and I think that's like the opposite of Juliette Lewis, where she, when she's singing and performing on stage, like. They, they do a very good job. Like she's very captivating in that. And, and so I think in some ways there is success there. I just keep thinking about one of the last scenes where she's like, leave me alone, buddy. And like, it could, she starts screaming out of nowhere. I just like, oh, you are acting. <laughs> but that, um, that last video clip where you, do, I guess you're not supposed to know if the man that we're watching through his perspective is raping her or if she's consenting to rough play. Like, we're not really supposed to know what's happening in that scene. And her acting is so flat in it. But I was also like, well, if she's acting in this, if this character is acting in this moment, I guess this is fine. Like, it, it does, there were so many layers of like, is this, am I watching Juliette Lewis? Am I watching Faith pretending and then I'm supposed to think about how Ray Fiennes feels about it. And I don't really care, but <laughs> yeah, that's not really the point by that time in the movie. I just rewatched Cabaret um, with Liza Minnelli. And like, there, there's a similar thing there where you're like, she's supposed to be kind of bad, right? But she's right. Liza Minnelli. She's just like <laughs> so good. Right. It is that interesting thing of like the hardest thing for a lot of actors to play is like a bad actor. Because, like, they get asked to do it every so often. And, like, Liza does the opposite thing where she's just like, I'm Liza Minnelli and I'm going to blow you off the stage, kid. And then, like, you know, Juliette Lewis in this is like, I think she's trying to deliberately give a bad performance in that scene. But it just leaves you being like, did Juliette Lewis, like, just not not really want to be at work that day? She was yeah. over hanging out with Tom Sizemore. <laughs> um, I think w one of the things, so this... So the movie is about catching these these murderers, at, which is which is, um, I mean, uh, the movie is about tech, like I, whatever you know, like plot, blah blah blah. I don't really give a shit about any of that when I think about this movie. Um, it's aesthetic, and it's these characters and these worlds and this club that I desperately wanted to like hang out in as a teenager. Uh, that I would be like, please, I never want to be in a space like that ever <laughs> as an adult. But um, the influence of the L.A. riots, right, I think is huge on this, right, with the police violence, um, particularly targeting black people, having the um, Jericho one, the, the rapper who like openly speaks out against injustice and against the police being murdered by the police. Like it it very much like, I don't know, feels like of the time. And I think it's fair, you know, whatever in the hands of the wrong people to some degree. But I think it's really interesting, Emily, when you were talking about how the critics reacted then versus how they react now to this kind of story. And like, what does it mean in the hands of these white creators to be telling this story and having it kind of be an aside, mm. right? Like it's not, 
it's not really about the cop killing this guy. It's about the evidence of the woman seeing that the cop killed this guy. Right. Right. Yeah. The, and it is, it is really like the, the Rodney King, uh, uh, beating that, uh, touched off the, what touched off the LA, um, riots, uh, was just because somebody, we had a camcorder and like we see like the reason we are so much more aware of police violence is just the presence of cameras everyone has cameras now and this is this is kind of a movie about what happens when police turn off their body cameras in a weird way somebody tweeted that at me so i'm stealing it from them thank you person who tweeted at me um but uh it's yeah it's it's a really like i'm fascinated by that soup like i I do like Catherine Bigelow a lot. I wouldn't say she's like my favorite ever. And I think she's gotten a bit of a bad rap in recent years in terms of her people interpreting her as conservative in some ways, not like in the sense of like she, you know, voted for Trump or anything like that. Cause I don't think anyone believes that, but in the sense of her like supporting state power because of a certain reading of zero dark 30, which I disagree with, but like, I think she, what she's interested in is the way Again, it is kind of like the thing in this movie where the police just follow whoever's closest to them. And she's interested in the way that these predominantly male-driven institutions are so susceptible to basically a cult of personality. If everyone's mm-hmm. like, well, that guy seems cool, then they're going to just do whatever for that person. And like, I think, I think in some ways Zero Dark Thirty is her most personal movie because it's about a woman trying to figure out what it means to exist in this space. And like... I think if it wasn't based on a real story, people would have fewer issues with it. But I always like sort of think about how that movie was about originally about the failure of the U S to capture bin Laden. It was about all of the like things that people did. And then they never found Osama bin Laden. And he just is, you know, escaped into the Afghanistan mountains or whatever. And like, then while they were making it, they like killed him. So they had to totally rewrite it. And I think that's some of its tonal disjointedness, but I'm fascinated by the way that Catherine Bigelow is about the ways that these institutions driven by men are just easily warped by just like one guy standing up and being like, let's hurt everybody. And then like a woman coming in and being like, I don't know if I agree with that, but also like having to kind of just, just figure out a way to exist within that space. Um, I think, I think, you know, that that's a fascinating thing about her in strange days is not her first movie about that. It's blue. I think it's called Blue Steel um, with Jamie Lee Curtis. It's probably her first movie about that. But yeah, it's. Does she? I don't know. Does she direct Blue Steel? She directed some. I can't. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. But it stars Jamie Lee Curtis as a cop. Um, yeah. Okay. It's it's a really good movie. Um, but yeah, she's um, she's such an interesting and idiosyncratic director. And this movie almost killed her career. And it's her best movie. So. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would, I would fight you a little bit on Point Break. We could, we could battle that out. Oh, but it's great. I, I, Point Break great. Yeah, I know it would be half-hearted because I love both of these movies so much. I just am, as our listeners know, obsessed with Patrick Swayze and the Patrick Swayze trifecta. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the one of the things that I thought uh, really ties this in with some of the other movies we watched is the paranoia that that is attached to and around technology. And this comes out specifically in the character of Philo, where he is becoming really paranoid because he's like, in this instance, it's he's, he's wired up too much. Uh, He's, I forget how they phrased it. Like uh, whatever he's been wired up too much. Um, And he is becoming really controlling and abusive. And I'm like, whatever, I'm sure he was controlling and abusive before, but that the technology and the tech is making him more paranoid, which is a bit of a different take than some of the other movies that we've watched. That's been more like, Oh, I'm afraid of technology because it makes bad things happen. Right. And again, it's very prescient, this idea that like when you get super invested in the lives of, I don't want to say the wrong people, but when you become super tapped into the experience of people who are taking you down the wrong path, because I think the internet has given us, the internet has the capacity to give us great empathy and also the capacity to give us like a hermetically sealed world that we never see anybody outside of. Um, 
And I think that this movie is very much about like, oh, what happens if you just kind of chase that feeling off a cliff? Mm. And um, I mean, I, that, that this will segue back into me talking about transness for 10 minutes. So please say whatever <laughs> else you want to say. Well, I just want to, uh, I mean, maybe that should be our bonus because I want to hear more, <laughs> more about yeah. that. But like, I there are a couple of other films and I don't know like if this is the first time that sort of a first person POV is used in a Hollywood movie like this um obviously there was that big spate of like found footage movies that happened 10 years ago um I was thinking about of one of those which is End of Watch it's a found footage copaganda movie with Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena in which it's like most of the movie is is from their body cams uh POV and it's also it also reminded me a lot of cachet and with cachet it's kind of another similar thing where you think the movie is about um, uh, surveillance and paranoia and privacy but ultimately it's about a much bigger socio-political issue and how that plays out in our lives and so I felt like that was that was just something that this movie I think does well is it asks those personal questions. Like that's kind of what Ray Fiennes is going through is like the personal side of um, being able to tap into this technology and being able to live on this underbelly. And then Angela Bassett's character is, is exploring the social side of this and like, what does this technology mean about the world we're living in? Uh, in which I took a couple of notes that I just wanted to share. The economy sucks. Gas is over three bucks a gallon. Fifth grade kids are shooting each other at recess. What are we even celebrating anyways? And at one point, um, the local news anchor uh, speaks about some predictions, I guess, that psychics have made for the 21st century on the eve of Y2K. Muammar Gaddafi will be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Turkey will make reparations to Armenia. And by 2025, Whoa. there will be a second woman president. <laughs> so, again, I was like, that's a little bit of, like, cheeky, you know, Hollywood. Oh, wouldn't this be funny? But um, definitely big LOL about those. And everything got better, actually. <laughs> no, I, like, I like that they're like, like that is this interesting thing of like when you just talk to a random person, they're like, things are just going to keep getting worse. And then like on TV, it's like, and they're just going to get better and better and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I um, had nowhere to go with that. Uh, I would like to end on the best line in the whole movie. It's real time. Time to get real. <laughs> When she's yelling, Angela Bassett's yelling at Nero to like, like get his shit together. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cheesy. Who wrote this shit? And she delivers it like a champ, you know, like a fucking professional that she is. Is that the scene when they get to the New Year's Eve celebration and he's got the tape and he's going to maybe go sell it to the highest bidder, but she's like, she's... I, uh, the, my note was, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy begging him to have some goddamn integrity. Like, don't sell this tape on the black market. Please use it to reveal all of this corruption. Um, yeah. The I, biggest, I don't remember what it was. Yeah. The biggest New Year's Eve celebration Los Angeles has never had, also. Oh, the uh, That's true. Yeah. That kiss was so is so unnecessary, but was so obviously reverse engineered from wouldn't it be cool if we had a kiss in front of simultaneous fireworks and like a riot breaking out? And it's <sighs> such a good image that I can't it's the obligatory ending kiss that we don't need, but it's such a good image that I'm like, yeah, whatever, I'll give you that. Sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super annoying. And you're like, the, the that is the part of this movie that I have the hardest time with where I'm like, why do you like this guy? He's such a doofus. There's nothing redeeming about him. Go move on to somebody else. So when they kiss at the end, you're like, oh, fine, whatever, whatever. And you're like, I don't care that he has finally realized that faith is not for him. Like, I just don't. None of that matters to me at all as a part of this movie. 
Uh, it's, it's because James Cameron was really invested in the romance. I read that on the Wikipedia page. He was invested in the romance and Catherine Bigelow was like, I want to make something gritty and real. And like, that's, it's so obviously the writing process. Um, Kat, I want to call back to something you just said about the first person stuff. You think about in 1999, a few years after this movie comes out, that's the year that two of the most influential movies ever made, um, The Blair Witch Project and The Matrix, come out. Mm -hmm. And they have heavy vibes that overlap with this movie. I'm not saying that this movie inspired anything in either of those films, but it, it would not surprise me. I love this fucking movie. I still loved it upon rewatching it. It was a lot harder to watch. Uh, I'm really sad that it's hard to find. I just found that out because I have it. Uh, and so if you can find it, I highly recommend it with all of the caveats that we just discussed for the last 40, <laughs> 40 minutes. Um, all right, y'all. Thank you. And we will be right back with some freakouts. If you are enjoying our show, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Your monthly or annual tax-deductible gift helps us keep the show running and on the air. By becoming a patron, you're supporting independent feminist media and a nonprofit that's working to end abuse in the games industry. Plus, patrons get a special bonus alongside each episode of the podcast. Of course, we know that not everyone has the means to financially support the show, so... Just taking a moment to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show can help new listeners find us. We appreciate your support in whatever way you can provide it. Now, back to the show. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us. Kat, what are you freaking out about? I just watched the first episode of a show that I hadn't heard a thing about until I opened up my Peacock app, uh, which is The Resort. Have you heard about this? I mean, Emily has, of course, but I didn't know anything about it, didn't know what to expect. And, uh, well, Emily, I want you to speak on it, and then I'll tell people what I thought about the pilot. I haven't I haven't seen it. I, I have heard people saying it's good, so I'm excited to hear you tell me why I should watch it tonight. Yeah, I mean, so, un so sorry, I haven't watched Mr. Robot. This is from the guy who made Mr. Robot. Um, I saw the like featured featured series on Peacock or whatever. William Jackson Harper, whom I loved in uh, The Good Place, obviously, but I also really loved him in the second season of Love Life, which I feel like nobody talked about that movie, I, that show. I didn't like the second season. I, I I think I bounced out of it. I like I thought the first season was fine, like an interesting premise, yeah. whatever. And then the second season felt like a little bit meaner in some ways that I was like, I'm not here for this. And I bounced out pretty early. I think, and this could be maybe an unfair rating, but just like seeing an actor do something so different from what you have known them for. So I guess go, seeing him go from cheaty to that. Uh, and Kristen Milotti, who I feel like is always interesting uh, I think also that maybe the writer of Palm Springs or somebody involved in Palm Springs is involved in the resort so it's uh, I just watched the first episode this is a couple celebrating their 10-year anniversary uh, at a resort in Mexico and during like a uh, off uh, what's it called an ATV accident Kristen Milotti finds a 15 year old cell phone in in the jungle and uses it to realize this belonged to a missing person, someone who went missing 15 years ago uh, at a neighboring resort. And it looks to me like the story is going to be about this couple investigating this cold case as a way to bring them closer together because after 10 years of marriage, they've started to drift apart. And ultimately, I don't think I'm going to be that interested in the story of this couple maybe finding their way back to each other or whatever. But especially in the context of Strange Days, I think it's very interesting as to, to continue exploring how we treat uh, mysteries and violent mysteries and real-life people who maybe were harmed or murdered or lost or whatever. They are sensational for a reason. They're fascinating for a reason. Um, but I... I'm curious to see if the show kind of gets into, like, why is this woman so invested in doing the research herself? You know, they, the show wouldn't exist if she just gave the phone back to the Mexican federal government and said, oh, 
this is for your investigation. Um, but the fact that it's really something that reaches inside of her to say, like, you need to dig further. Um, yeah. So I'm, I've only watched the first episode. I can't speak further about it, but I was definitely hooked to keep watching. Listen, it's because she's seen strange days and she knows the only cop you can trust is that old man who looks like Joe Biden. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is Christopher Malati the one that's in Made for Love? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, fucking loved that show. She was so good in that. What is the line? I mean, about- I kind of want to watch it now just because she's in it, even though this doesn't sound up my alley. The line about Joe Biden cop is his ass is so tight when he farts, only a dog can hear it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. God, that's. <laughs> and you're like two hours into like one of the hardest movies, like like fucking hard movies you've ever seen. And then you're like, <laughs> <laughs> writing jokes. Um, no, that's not, the resort sounds interesting because um, Arden is obviously we're playing around in that space too. So I'm always fascinated to see other people, their takes on it and see if they've ripped us off. Um, <laughs> Excellent. I, I don't think they have. Um, Emily, what are you freaking out about? Uh, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about uh, a couple things. Um, I am uh, very much uh, uh, consuming all things Michelle's honor right now. Um, oh, yes. I've always loved Japanese breakfast, her band, but I was recently, story time with Emily, I was recently at a camp for trans teenagers and I was teaching journalism there. And um, I had a really lovely time with all these kids. And then I just had like, I had just enormous emotions about the idea of if I had had actually supportive parents who had let me live my life and had like sent me to a place like that. And so the way I processed those emotions was I uh, put my headphones in. I, 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 they, um, after the camp, I went and visited a friend in suburban Cleveland. So, uh, I, I was processing these emotions by putting my headphones in blasting Japanese breakfast and walking around suburbia and crying. And I'm like, this is the most 17 year old girl thing I could possibly have done. So I was like very validated by this like emotional experience, but I loved her music. And then um, I forgot I had placed a hold on crying in H Mart at the library. And so I just got it. And now I'm reading it and I'm like, this book is really good. Uh, no one is talking about it. It's like one of the most acclaimed books of the last five years, but it's so fantastic and so smart and so nuanced about a really complicated parent-child relationship in a way that I think I don't know. It doesn't let the parent off the hook, but also shows you why the child keeps coming back. Um, I think she's such a fascinating writer and I love her music. Um, I came here directly from personal training and I made my personal trainer listen to Japanese breakfast while I worked out, which is like a fun thing to do. Um, That's amazing. (laughs) I have a hold on that book right now. So I'm like, I'm like LA public library. Have more copies of things. Oh, no, listen, <laughs> I'm like listen. excited to read it. I'm like overdue. They keep sending me emails. So it's possible I have your copy. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? you. Crying in H Mart, I read as a recent griever of a parent. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is beautifully written about that complicated subject. But also there's a passage in the book where she talks about, and I started reading this book not realizing that she was from Japanese Breakfast. I just was reading grief books. And then she starts talking about, as a teenager, when she discovered the yeah, yeah, yeahs, and is both elated to see that there can be a half Korean American woman in rock and roll, and also distraught because that means there already is one, so they won't make space for me, even though nobody says there's already an Iggy Pop. And um, by the time this episode airs, I will already have gone to the Hollywood Bowl to see the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, supported by Japanese Breakfast and the Linda Lindas. And I'm so excited. Shut up. What a lineup. What a lineup. This, like, kind of three micro generations of, like, women in rock who are, uh, the Linda Lindas are both Asian and Latine. And just to see, like, that continuum is something that's really exciting. Um, but also, she uh, Michelle's Honor is going. She's already signed on, I think, to adapt her own book for the for the movie. She's going to be the screenwriter. That's amazing. Um, yeah. I have to get tickets to that show. Like I, I've been looking at it and being like, my wife is um, 
not. My wife is is very pregnant, and so she won't be going with me. But um, this is the first time I've said that publicly, buried at the end of a podcast from some <laughs> other people. Um, but yeah, she's um, she's not going to be able to go to that at that point in time because it will be like six weeks before we have a baby. But yeah. I'm going to find somebody to go to that with me. Uh, um, if you if you get a ticket, let me know. Uh, I have a connection at the Hollywood Bowl who usually makes my seats better. Um, oh. I just buy cheap seats and then you can sit with me. <laughs> is is this in August or is it after August? I think it's in August. Damn it. Sorry. I would totally go with you if it was not in August. Uh, <laughs> my other recommendation was going to be the new show from the guys who made Halt and Catch Fire, one of my favorite TV shows ever, is out. It's on Amazon Prime. It's called um, Paper Girls. It's an adaptation oh, yeah. of the comic. I've only seen a couple eps. It's really good. Um, the fuck? And- Sorry, I'm freaking. My freak out is going to be that they made a new show. That I fucking Halt and Catch yeah. Fire is one of my favorite shows. Huh? Ah! They have been trying and trying what? to get something made for a long time. And then they, they adapted this Brian K. Vaughn comic about uh, paper paper girls, girls who, you know, throw papers and then they travel through time. Um, it's really good. It's really well done. It's very Stranger Things-y, but has kind of its own emotional tone. And also, unlike Stranger Things, it understands how to write women as actual people. Um, I love Stranger Things, but oh boy. Um, yeah, Paper Girls is worth checking out. I can't wow. wait to see it. And Anita, that show is on October 6th. So y'all should definitely get tickets. I can totally go. I, All right. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. And and if you're listening to this now, maybe you can still get tickets. I didn't realize when it's happening. So Yeah, you can nice. you can hang out with, with me. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a treat. Anita, uh, could you be freaking out at anything other than that? I mean, I kind of don't feel like I should now. I feel like I'm just really legitimately freaking out about Paper Girls. Um, the So my freakout's a little bit weird um, because it's about therapy. Um, I have, Weird. I can't believe you do therapy. That's gross. I know. It's so weird. So I um, have been extremely frustrated by cognitive therapy, also called talk therapy, where you just go and talk to someone and then everything is supposed to be resolved. And that's just not it just doesn't fucking work uh, for me. And um, so I've been I did, you know, been in and out of therapy for a long time and I kind of like give up on it and then like go back when I'm feeling heightened and then give up on it again because I'm like, I don't need to pay you to tell you what I can just what's happening in my week or like I have really good friends that I can talk to about things. And like, this just doesn't feel like it's getting anywhere. Um, and I have recently started doing somatic experiencing and it is truly shockingly life-changing in ways that I'm like, well, I guess I need to freak out about this because it's, it's so impactful. So in, in traditional therapy, I, when they're like, what you know what is the youngest age that you remember experiencing the fucking blah blah blah? like i don't fucking remember my childhood i don't know what i was thinking or feeling about anything and then they'll they'll be like okay now visualize i'm like i can't visualize shit it's all just fucking white space right like it just it that none of that stuff works for me so in somatic experiencing the idea is that if you've ever read the book the body keeps the score it's very much that it's about how trauma gets trapped in your body and so you can't talk it out and you can't think it out, which is very hard for those of us who are very rational, very um, like intellectually focused. And so somatic experiencing therapy talks to your body. Um, You know, like when you're, when you're, when you're working with a practitioner, they'll be like, okay, so what is your body telling you now? Right. Not what is your brain telling you? And I like, it is so goofy. Like it's goofy and weird and like, odd and it is the most I've ever been able to tap into like real emotions been able to do like incredible visualization stuff like have real emotional reactions like that don't involve like talking about anything you never have to talk about your trauma you never have to say what happened because it doesn't matter because it lives in your body and so I just I it's been extremely um, it's been, it's been so exciting to me and it's been, it's, I, I like at a loss for words because I, I can't, I feel like I'm, well, that's I know point. that I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just, I feel like it took me so long to learn about this thing and find this thing that like can actually help work through a lot of the traumas that I've experienced in ways that feel 
like long term mm-hmm. and like healing and you know restorative in a lot of ways. So it's called somatic experiencing. If you have a similar, uh, if if anything I said resonated about your experiences with therapy, trying out somatic experiencing might be something interesting for you to explore. Just the whole world of trauma therapy is fascinating because there's so many different approaches. I I'm in cognitive processing therapy, which is like an offshoot of cognitive therapy, but like very much more, it's like, it's like trying to solve trauma with math. And I was so skeptical of it when I started, but my therapist was like, I think this will work. And she was, um, she seemed like she could be my best friend. So I was like, we're going to do this. We're just going to see how far this goes. Cause I think we're going to become great friends at the end of this. Um, and it, it actually worked really well, but like, I know so many friends who've been helped by EMDR and like, yeah. I'm just fascinated by all the ways that our brains are, are, and bodies are sometimes just not communicating and just need to get better yeah. at that. And I I love that there is a, a larger movement towards um, destigmatizing therapy and destigmatizing support and also more conversations around trauma specifically. Because look, there are a lot of bad therapists that can cause way more problems than they help and not, and therapists don't have to be trained in trauma. So like if, you know, make sure you're seeking out therapists who are actually trained in trauma response and understand that and, and do, uh, you know, try out different, different variations of this. I've done EMDR. It doesn't work for me because it does require you tapping into the feeling. And I'm like, I can't access feelings. Like I can't just be like, what did it, how did you feel about the thing that happened yesterday? Like cat, I texted cat before we started recording about something I was really pissed off about. I'm fucking, I'm over that now. I can't (laughs) tell you how I felt about that anymore. Right. Like it's just, it just gets trapped and stored. So, and I want um, to PSA to anyone listening: it can be a really long road to even Google how therapy. You know, it, it, getting that first step can be years uh, long, and it's okay if you if you go down the wrong road a few times. I have. Uh, and many people will say they have experienced like I went to a bad therapist or I went to a support group. It wasn't the right thing. I tried EMDR. It didn't really work for me. Like there's I think because there has been so much stigma, a lot of people when they finally get the courage or the wherewithal or the resources internally and externally to actually seek something out. If that first thing doesn't work, that may be the end of the road for a lot of people's experiences. And I I'm always urging people to keep trying. I had a therapist use the R word in a session, and that was uh, our last session. <laughs> and I was like, you know. I had a therapist who crossed some serious fucked up boundaries. Like, and it wasn't like a sexual thing. It was just like bad practice boundaries. And like, you, they're bad. They're bad therapists. Yeah. And, and you know? you're, you know, I'm trying to find someone in network in uh, before the pandemic that I can get to outside of work hours. That's in a neighbor. You know, you go through a lot to get there, but it's, worth it to keep trying so yeah yeah Uh, PSA Mm, nothing has helped me more than finding the right therapist so yeah yeah when I finally found the right person I was like this is what it's supposed to have felt like the whole time um which is the same (laughs) which is also because that's how you talk about romance (laughs) yeah which is super frust up frust up wow which is messed up because like I feel like it's good practice to have therapy or like therapeutic support, which could look many different ways. But a lot of people tend to enter into therapy when things are bad, right? Not Mm -hmm. when things are good. And like, how hard is it to go and do all of those steps and all that shit when you're already struggling with the thing, right? And it's just, it's, it's challenging for sure. And I appreciate that, that PSA of like, it's not a one size fits all situation. And also you can leave your therapist and if they tell you you can't, then they're fucked up and bad. Like people feel like they're trapped in those relationships sometimes and you're not. You call the shots about what you want in that space. There was a time when I was seeing five therapists at once because I was too scared to break up with any of them. Oh, <laughs> oh no. See? Exactly. A therapy polycule. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this- buddy. This has been a very self-actualized group of women talking about uh, all the money and time we spend on trying to fix what's broken in our heads. Um, And hey, maybe not broken, just the chemicals are doing what they're doing and the history's happened, it's happened and got a lot to work out and here we are, love it.
I want to say thank you, Emily. This has been uh, wonderful to chat with you. And definitely you're somebody that I've admired for many years. So to get to talk to you about a movie has been delightful. Thank you so much. I had a, a, a really great time um, hanging out with you two, uh, hanging out virtually with you two and talking about strange days. Where can our listeners find you on the internet? I am, uh, my writing mostly appears at Vox. Um, I also have a newsletter at emilyvdw.letterdrop.com. I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash emilyvdw. And whatever platform you're listening to this podcast in, you can also find Arden there. Uh, A-R-D-E-N, garden without the G. Uh, It is about two women who solve cold cases and try not to fall in love. And Mm. um, it's... uh, I don't know. We're currently making season three and um, uh, season two is, uh, I think, I mean, I love all the show, but season two has some stuff in it that really deals with a lot of the things we've been talking about throughout this show. So yeah, check it out. Nice. Well, I'm Anita Sarkeesian and you can find me at Anita Sarkeesian on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kat Spada. You can find me on Twitter at Kat underscore EX underscore Machina. And you can follow Feminist Frequency at FemFreak. If you are a Patreon subscriber, be sure to stick around for the bonus episode with our guest, Emily St. James. If you like the show, help other people find it by subscribing, rating, and commenting on your favorite podcatcher to help other people find it as well. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.